0: Uh, Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be at today. I'm going to read it, and then we'll get get started. We're going to start in verse verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, and bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable father God I, I come before you this morning to God ask for your help as we um, search through this 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 uh, large text God with lots of of good truth God your truth God we need your help we need uh, um, just your spirit to to open up the eyes of our hearts to, for understanding from your word God help me to speak with clarity and help this congregation to um, to receive your word with with, uh, with zeal and vigor to um, to not just hear, but to do, God. We ask for all that to be done this morning. And God, most importantly, God, we ask that you would be glorified um, this morning in us. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This sermon today is really part two of, of, of a two-part sermon series that I realize won't make sense to many of you, so if you'd like... Um, you can go on our church website and find part one. Uh, it's, it's online. You can give that a listen to catch you up kind of to where we're at. But I'll, I'll fill you in just a little bit. So here we are in, in Romans chapter 12. And Romans chapter 12 is where Paul begins to describe what the Christian life is like, what it looks like to, to act and think and behave like a Christian. And it's really this small piece of this huge book that we call Romans. Um, the book is Romans, as you may well know. Uh, is Paul writing to the community of of Christians in Rome, and we call that the Church of Rome? And in Rome, there's at this particular time, as Paul's writing towards the the end of his his ministry, um, there were two different groups of Christians in in in, uh, in Rome. You had the the Gentile Christians, who were one group, who were um, Romans or or other other types of Gentiles that were not Jews that had come to to hear about this 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 man Jesus this this uh, the Savior Jesus, and they trusted in Him, and then they started to follow Him, and, and left behind their old life and became followers of Jesus. And then the other side, you have the Jewish Christians, who were uh, people that were Jewish by birth, that they were a part of the Jewish faith, they would adhere to Jewish law, and then they they also saw and heard and uh, a testimony of this 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 guy Jesus, and they decided they were going to follow as well, and so they be, they became Christians. They trusted in in this this man Jesus, and and they were uh they were so captivated by him and then so as as it is with two different types of people they fought they didn't get along uh over and over again the the gentile christians and the and the jewish christians would bicker each one each group was convinced that the way they chose to worship or the way they chose to hold what was important or what wasn't important was right i mean it's it's typical when people are different some most of the time they argue. And so what Paul's mission here with the, with the book of Romans is really to unify these two groups of people. It's to bring them together under this commonness that they share because they're all under Christ. And so the book of Romans is really the gospel expanded more so than any other book. He takes this one idea the gospel and spreads it out into four different areas. And he, and, and, he, and he explains this so that the Gentile Christians and the and the Jewish Christians in Rome will be unified. And these four sections are, are really simple. They they kinda all flow together and they all have to do with with excuse me, the gospel. And so the first part is, uh, is how God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel, how the gospel of Jesus, um, who calls sinners to follow him, is the power of God and is the salvation for those of here. It's, it's this gospel that, um, that says because of our sin, we are no longer able to have a relationship with this holy, righteous God, but Christ's substitutionary death, by his death, we can be justified, not by works of the law, not by our good deeds, but by faith. And then Paul moves into the second part, which is how the gospel creates a new humanity. How in Adam we're all broken and and we're descendants of, of, of sinners and we ourselves are sinners. We have fallen short of the glory of God. But in Christ we are made new, with a new life, with a new heart. And it's how choosing to follow Jesus is to leave behind the old humanity and to accept the new humanity, this new nature. And then the third part is how, how the gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel. So if you think all the way back to your Old Testament times, how, how God had made a promise to Abraham, Abraham sorry, Abraham, that his, through his, his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. God has elected a covenant family, the family of Abraham, to carry the promise. And, and even inside that, there was always a specific Part that God chose to elect so he chose to elect Isaac and not Ishmael he chose to elect Jacob and not Esau and you keep following that pattern all the way down where God has chosen the people to, who follow Jesus over the people who reject Jesus and that's all a part of how the gospel is fulfilling God's promise to Israel and then finally how the gospel unifies the church how it brings us together and so what I want you to do is I want you to look at Romans chapter 12 verse 1 just quickly You'll see this word. This is this is a very important word. Anytime you read your Bible and you see this word, is important. It says, "I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship." Okay, so you see that word, therefore. So he's got this whole book ahead that he's talking about how the gospel is, is God's righteousness revealed and how, how Jesus brings us into a new humanity and how that new humanity is fulfilling the promise to Abraham. Therefore, we ought to live a certain way. So chapter 12 is where the fourth part begins. It's, it's how, how the new life is different. How we ought to live differently. And what we see as we follow along in chapter 12, Paul begins describing this new life. That was what the, the other sermon was about, was, um, it was about this first half and how, uh, how it's lived together. How in chapter 12, verses 2 through 8, it starts with the mind, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then it moves into um, to, to how we're, we're united, but we're not... We are united but not uniform. We are brought together by Jesus, but we are certainly not the same. How thankful it is that I didn't get asked to to sing a special this morning because nobody wants to hear that. Um, It would not be too great. It would be special. (laughs) And you wouldn't forget it. But Okay, sorry. So each of us are different, and he writes how that is a good thing how each of us are different, how each of us has different gifting in which we are to submit to God in service to one another. And that he, God uses our gifts when we, when we submit them to service to one another to build up one another in this community of believers we call the church. And then in the second half, which is where we're going to be at today, um, starting in verse 9, he describes just how the church will be unified, what actions are going to be there. The attributes of Christians and what really unifies them. And so here's here's what we'll see. We will see that the church will be unified through love and forgiveness in serving one another. And so here in, in Romans chapter 12, Paul is going to give 25 actions, 25 behaviors, uh, 25 virtues, if you will, that make up the character and behavior of a true born-again Christian. 25 different things that a believer will be so compelled by the Spirit that they will do them. Like, it's not just a, a the, here's, here's a list, if you can do about half of them, you're, you're doing great. It's not, a, it's not a measurement, it's a, the Spirit will compel you to do these things because these things are all attributes of how, what God is and His character. These are the the markings of a true believer. If you if your Bible is like mine, you have that little title. It says "Marks of a of a true believer." Now, I bring this up because we live in a day where the the Christian behaves, acts, and thinks virtually no different than the non-Christian, and that is wrong. If we are a people that have been brought out of sin and into freedom in Christ, we should be very, very different from the world outside of us. We should not be the same. So here's some examples, of, of just, if, you don't, if you don't believe me, of how how Christians behave the same. So some, some st- um, statistics show that Christians look and view money, how we earn money and how we spend money, the same way as, as non-Christians. It's wrong. You shouldn't think about money the same way. Uh, the percentage of men who view pornography, is virtually the same among Christians as is non-Christians. That is not okay. Some studies show that um, in Christian marriages, abuse is just as, as, um, as ongoing as non-Christian marriages. Again, not okay. Priorities on the Christian household um, for their kids are almost identical in Christian households as they are in non-Christian households. When I was growing up, our coaches in football taught us this football, faith, family, in that order. And in most of the the Christian households, that's the same. Now, in my house, it was a little different. I had great parents, I was really blessed. It was not football, faith, family, it was faith, family, football. And they would do lots of things to prove that I was not allowed to play sports on Sundays. My priority was not not to to sports, but the overwhelming majority of Christians in America, their priorities are all sorts of wacko. It should not be that way. And so, for the sake of time, um, and and really to prevent an overload of information for you, Paul lists twenty five. We're going to talk about the first five, the five actions that. That are the marks of a true believer. So if you will look at Romans chapter 12 verse 9. It says this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So there's three right there. We'll talk about the first one. Let love be genuine. So let let me just be blunt. And and, and just, just be honest with you this morning. You have not read your New Testament very much. If this is the first time you've heard that you should love other people. Over and over and over again, that is the call of the New Testament, to love others. Over and over again. MacArthur, John MacArthur calls it the supreme New Testament virtue. Okay, don't believe me? Here's a few examples. uh, Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, verse 35. Sorry, I cannot flip very well this morning. Verse 35 says this, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what is the greatest commandment? To love. To love God. And to love others. See right there, the most important virtue you can do with your life is to love God and to love others. Flip over to John chapter 13. Here's another commandment of of where Jesus commands to love. John chapter 13 verse 34. It says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Love one another as I have loved you, you love one another. Three times in one verse. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So not only are we to love, but we are commanded to love by the highest authority in heaven and on earth. And by our love, what? They will know you're my disciples. By our love for other people, the world will look out and say, they, they belong to, to Jesus. Jesus. And so if you are a Christian, you are going to love because if you do not love, you do not know God because God is love. That's in 1 John chapter 4. I could go on and on and on, but I think you're, you're kind of getting the point. We ought to love one another. Now, what, what does that mean? We, we know we should love each other. Jesus said it. Uh, John repeated it. Paul repeated it over and over again. Uh, what, is, what is love? Love is a challenging word to define because in English, it's, it's a word that can mean a lot of things. Uh, it can involve personal attraction. It can involve, um, it can involve platonic admiration. It can define brotherly loyalty. It can describe benevolent concern, worshipful adoration, family obligation. Uh, people around the world love all sorts of things, um, and the, they use that word for all sorts of different meanings. You can love your spouse, but you can also love crossword puzzles. You can love pancakes, but you can also love classic cars. And the way in which you love those are very, very different. You should not love classic cars the same way you love your spouse. English is confusing. It's confusing to me how we use the same word to how we feel about the most significant and important people in our lives as we can use for a greasy cheeseburger. English is hard. So here's, here's a poem that I found that really describes how hard English is. It says, we'll begin with the box. The plural is boxes. But the plural of ox should be oxen, not oxes. One fowl is a goose, but two are called geese, yet the plural of moose should never be meese. You may find a lone mouse or a nest full of mice, yet the plural of house is houses and not heis. If the plural of man is always called men, then why shouldn't the plural of pan be called pen? The cow in plural may be cows or kind, but the plural of vow is vows, not vine. I speak of my foot and I show you my feet, but I give you a boot. Would a pair be a beat? <laughs> if the singular of this and the plural is these, why shouldn't the plural of kiss be named Keese? then one may then one then one may be that, and three may be those. Yet the plural of hat would never be hose. We speak of a brother and also of brethren. But though we say mother, we never say metherin. The poem obviously continues, but the point—you get the point. English is difficult. Thankfully, your Bible was not originally written in English. I know we we read it in English, and and it's it's not a thousand percent necessary for you to to go back and learn Greek and Hebrew because. The Bible still is, is true. We still should love. But originally it was written in Greek and Hebrew. Um, and those are two of the most incredibly descriptive languages that have ever existed. Okay, They don't just have a word for love. They have four words for love. And each one of those is a different thing. And we could get into the different types of love in Greek and Hebrew. But um, the, we'll talk about just the, the most important ones. Uh, one, one here and then one later on. We'll get to that here in a second. So uh, the, the one we'll start with is in, in Hebrew. It is called... Uh, Chesed, and in Greek it is called agape, um, which are used to express the kind of love that God demonstrates towards his elect, towards his people. Chesed is is translated to steadfast love or or loving kindness. God's chesed love is why he never gives up on those he has adopted as his children. He's never given up on his his covenant people. Um, Throughout the Old Testament, you have over and over and over again God's people repeatedly falling into idolatry and, and turning their backs on God and choosing sin rather than Him. And yet He always He always preserves remnant. He's always faithful to His people. He never gives up on His people. Um, the reason why is his, his chesed love. And so in the New Testament you have this, uh, this Greek, which is agape, which is the equivalent of, of chesed, chesed. Agape love is the goodwill and benevolence of God shown in, in self-sacrifice. It's an unconditional commitment to, to a loved one. Agape and is similar to Chesson in that it is steadfast and regardless of circumstances. Agape love is the kind of love we are to have for God in, famil- in fulfillment of the greatest commandment. We talked about that earlier. Jesus himself wants to instill in us agape. He wants his followers to serve serve others through the power of the Holy Spirit, through agape. And so in the most basic sense, what we're talking about here, love, let love be genuine, is love is the emotion felt and the actions performed by someone who is concerned for the well-being of another person. Love involves affection, excuse me, compassion, care, self-sacrifice. And so we are to love, like Jesus loves agape, and we are to not only love like like Jesus loves, but we are to let that love be genuine. I like what the uh, the Christian Standard Bible says says in this verse. It, it, it says, "Let love be without hypocrisy." And so, um, so in ver- chapter twelve, verse nine, it says, "Let love be without hypocrisy." It says, "You are concerned with the well being, affectionate, compassion." compassion-filled, caring, self-sacrificing love, and it should be legitimate, should be genuine. Your love for others is to be shown purely, it is to be shown without self-centeredness, it's to be shown in humility, and it's not to be motivated by selfishness. We don't love people so that I can get something else out of it. That's not what it's about. It's to be genuine. It's to be without hypocrisy, not hiding with wrong intentions behind a mask of friendliness. A true Christian will be compelled to love and to love genuinely because they first have been loved genuinely and immeasurably by God. He did that first to us, we ought to do it to others. So we need to let love be genuine. The next virtue of five that we'll talk about, number two, is to abhor what is evil. So back to Romans chapter 12. Verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And so to abhor what is evil is really the flip side is to of uh, let love be genuine. In order to love really well, we must abhor what is evil. That word abhor means to regard with disgust and hatred. It's to wage war internally on evil and regard it for what it is. It's filth. Sin is filth. <clears throat> and really... Hatred of evil, abhorring what is evil is a part of of love. Now I understand it sounds sounds confusing that that a part of love is, is hatred, um, but maybe this will help you make sense of it. In order for a mother and a father to really love their child, they can't just be passively okay with child trafficking. I, I'm serious like uh, a mom and a dad have their have their their little one in, in the house and somebody comes banging on the door and they're trying to kick it down it's a child trafficker they can't just be like well i mean it's their 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 business they're just trying to to make a living they just cannot be okay with it otherwise they don't really love their kid they're going to do everything they can to protect their child if there's a child trafficker outside it it cannot be indifference indifference gets the child hurt extremely for parents to really display love for their child, they must do everything within their power to stop child traffickers from taking their children. It's just an example, okay? They, they got to pull out all the stops. Loving children's, children means saying no to the things that will hurt them. To really love means you will hate the things that, that hurt others. If we, if we happen to live in a world where people didn't get hurt, you wouldn't have to hate, okay? You wouldn't have to ha- hate things that hurt people. But we do. We live in a, in a broken and sinful world. It's, it's a result of the, the fall of man all the way back in, in Genesis when Adam and Eve chose to reject God. The world had catastrophic consequences. And we live in a broken world where things hurt people. And because, because there's brokenness, it is necessary for us to hate evil. Evil hurts people. And since evil dishonors God, you cannot claim to love people while you're loving what the Bible declares to be evil okay and and i don't want you to to sit sit there and be deceived into thinking that you have this sin that you cherish that doesn't actually hurt other people okay all sin affects other people there is not a sin that you can just keep to yourself that is insane to think that okay here's why you were made to display the worth of Christ to others to magnify his glory and his excellence that is what is good for other people that's loving other people that's <clears throat> That's what it means to love other people well. If you do anything that diminishes your own view of Christ or how you display Christ to the rest of the world, you sin against not just yourself, but against others. You rob them of what God made you to be. There is no victimless sin. So hate sin, hate it, abhor what is evil. Okay, the third one Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good um, let me just give you a helpful helpful um, truth and to understanding what uh, what it means to hold fast to what is good there in order for you to hold fast to what is good, you have to admit to yourself that objectively there is good outside of yourself you don't get to determine what good is, and also objectively there is evil outside yourself so if you read very carefully between the lines, you reread Romans chapter 12, verse 9, um, you'll notice that you will not see, let love be genuine, abhor what you think is evil, and hold fast to what I say is good for me. It doesn't say that. It says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Evil is not defined by what I hate or by what uh, does me the most hurt. In the same way, good is not defined by, by what I already hold fast to. Good is not defined by by what makes me feel good or what makes me feel best. Good things may not always make us feel good. Exercise does not always make me feel good. Okay, sometimes it hurts. That doesn't make it bad, doesn't make it evil. Um, You know what does make me feel good? Soda, pizza, and ice cream that does not make those things good for me. Okay? There is an objective truth that there are things that are good and there are things that are evil that are determined by a higher authority. I don't get to determine what's good and evil. Good and evil don't change. We change. Our hearts, we can cling to things because we desire them. Our hearts can reject things because we don't want them. Paul says, here's good, here's evil. Now, now, Submit to that and abhor what is evil and hold on to or cling dearly to what is good. So if we're to hold fast to what is good, how do we know what is good? Since we don't get to determine what is good, how, how do I know good if I see it? Since I, I, mean, I apparently don't get to decide um, how good it is. Fortunately, you don't have to look very far. Romans chapter 12. Verse 2 says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may determine the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you want to know if something is good, you must compare it to God in his word. You need to delight heavily in his word and know it in order to know what is good. Then you'll begin to see that he is good, and you will hold fast to God if you are holding fast to good. Hold fast means to, to cherish, to, to cling dearly, to, to hang on for dear life. Um, I told you I, I grew up here in this church, but I also grew up going to the lake a lot. And, oh, and we had a boat, and we, we would ski, and we'd tube, and we'd wakeboard, and all that. And one of the games that we eventually invented was um, to see if my dad could throw us off of the tube. And uh, he was very good at it. And there was one particular instance where where we had our cousins there with us and uh, the the, the overstreets there and my cousin seth he's he 's kind of a bigger guy he 's pretty stout and, and really strong, and uh, he was one of those guys that wasn 't going to let go of that tube if it killed him okay He took this game very seriously and so we All around the lake, my dad would swing the boat around, and the tube would go flying. And eventually, one, one particular time, it got flipped upside down, and he still would not let go. So the tube is dragging him underwater, and he's taking in copious amounts of lake water, which is just not very good. You shouldn't just drink it, okay? But here he is, and he just will not let go no matter what. And we're like, dude, it's not worth it. But to him, it was extremely worth it because he was winning the game though it seemed like he was losing. okay, That's what I picture when I think of holding fast to what is good. That even when you're dragged down, even what, while the devil throw, will throw everything that he has at you, you hang on to what is good. You hang on for dear life and you never, ever, ever let go. Hold fast to what is good. Four, love one another with brotherly affection. So that we're actually moving out of verse 9 and into verse 10 here. Um, so it took us that long to get through one verse. <laughs> love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now I know the tendency right here, so, so we see uh, it says love one another. We already talked about love, so let's just skip it, right? No. Um, Paul's talking about, he is talking about love but I don't think he's talking about the same kind of love. Um, we do need to love, but remember how I said English can be tricky? Here Paul uses a different word for love than agape. That's what we talked about before. He, uh, he's not just saying love again. He's saying, Well, he is saying love, but he's saying love in a very different way. Here's the type, uh, here the type of love in, in the Greek is is Storge. Um, and it's used to describe a familial bond or a special kind of attachment, um, the uh, the love a, a tight knit family shares. That no matter what what differences they have or what um, <clears throat> or, or, or or whatever, they will always be strong. They will always be together, and they will patiently endure everything together. To be to be more specific, it's 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 actually not even. Just Storge, but it's Philostorgos, um, which is tender affection, especially towards precious family members. So it says, Love one another with brotherly affection, to love one another with tender affection, especially like the love you give to precious family members. That word affection is really the, the, the key word to understand in this text. To understand what it means to love one another with brotherly affection, you have to understand affection. Affection is actually a feeling. We know we are compelled to love, to love each other by the Scriptures. We looked at numerous examples. We, we, you, there's more, certainly. The, the command is uh, for how we relate to each other in the body of Christ. It's not merely that we, we do good things to, to other people, that we return good for evil, or that we pray for those that treat us badly, or that we uh, do unto others what, what we want them to do to us. But this is more of a command to, to love and to feel Paul adds another piece to feel an affection, a tender affection for each other, uh, church brothers and sisters. We ought to feel inward affection towards one another, not just do nice things for each other, not just treat each other good, but we're to feel. John Piper, I, I listen to him a lot. He he says it best. It says that word affection is is like intestines or inner organs. You, f- it's it's a gut instinct. The idea is. Uh, I long for you. I love you, not just with the act of willpower, but with a deep tenderness. I miss you. I'm homesick for you. I feel. I'm bothered by your absence. I'm joyed to be with you. I know you, and you know me. It's a family bond. And there's actually a good example of this uh, in in Romans chapter 12, in, in verse 15, sorry. 15, it says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. To love someone affectionately means if they're happy, you're going to be happy too. If they're sorrowful or they're going through hard times, that's going to bother you. You're not going to look at them with cold indifference and say, I'll cook you a meal, but I'm sorry, whatever. Okay, You're going to feel. If they're heartbroken, you'll be heartbroken. Now, this kind of affection towards people that aren't your biological family it doesn't just happen naturally. A family bond doesn't just just happen for no reason with someone that you're not related to by birth. This, this what we're, we're talking about, is a supernatural thing. Th- this family is a family united by the greatest act of love imaginable. We, in this room, are broken people who can be adopted into a family we don't belong and given a title, and given an inheritance, brought into to a family, the family of God. So flip over to Galatians. There's a great, great text here that kind of describes this, this adoption process. Maybe. Galatians chapter 4, starting verse 3, says this, "...in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world." But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Born again believers... We're told that when we, when we trust in Jesus, when we place our faith with Him and, and, and turn away from our sins, we are at that moment born into God's kingdom. And His children become heirs with Him for, for eternity. We're, we're a part of, this is really what unifies us. is Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and our adoption as, as sons and daughters, united by Jesus. Um, though we may not be relatives by birth, We are related by blood, Jesus' blood that covers our sins and unites us as God's children. Number five, last one. Outdo one another. Outdo another in showing honor. This is a a command not only to, to show honor, I think, uh, and and honor in terms of dignity and respect and to go above and beyond the point that is necessary to to lift others up. Um, It's not not only show honor, but uh, I think it's a little different um, because we're to outdo one another. And so I don't think this is um, a command where you, you cling on to this one and then forget about the others. So remember the others we talked about, they all go together. Um, because I do think it's possible for you to honor a person that you have no affection for. Paul doesn't want you to choose between, well, do I show affection or do I honor? Because I honestly, some of these people, I can't stand, and it's one or the other, come on. Paul doesn't leave room for that, okay? Um, Do both. They are different. Honoring someone is treating them with your deeds and with your words as worthy of your service. They may not be worthy of it. But you do it anyways. Some honoring means treating people better than what they really deserve to be treated. They may be knuckleheads or rude or disagreeable. But you regard them as worthy of honor. Why? Because has God not already treated you the same way? I mean, I'm a sinner. Make no mistake, I am not perfect. Um, Who... No amounts of, of good deeds or standing up here and preaching or, or, or whatever can justify me in the eyes of God, yet God looks down at me um, because, because I've trusted in Jesus and says, Justified. I belong to Him. He says, I love you. And because God has already done that in me, I am compelled to do that in others. You count them. Worthy, the way God counts you righteous. This doesn't mean you you overlook their faults, but you act and you speak to honor them. So, what does it look like to to outdo one another? Is this some sort of system? Are we in a contest where Pastor Jason's up here and Logan's down here and outdoing one another? But if I outdo Pastor Jason, then I'm number one and I get to preach all the time. Th- um, I wish. No, it's not a contest. I, I grew up with a with a brother and sister, sisters over there. We we are very familiar with what it's like to try to outdo one another. But there, here's a very specific type of outdoing one another. It's outdoing one another and showing honor. I don't think Paul's advocating a system where you're you're constantly trying to to gain something, whether that be to to look more spiritual or to to be looked up upon. Actually, I think it's it's literally the opposite. I think outdoing one another means you prefer. To show honor uh, to others more than you prefer to be honored by others. It's seeking to make others look good more than you seek to make yourself look good. You don't spend countless hours attempting to uh, make yourself praised or elevated to this special place. It's giving effort to make others look good and look spectacular and elevating them to a special place. That's what Paul is calling us to. Now I'll begin and close with this. It is dangerous for you to, to look at, at this long list that's 25 things, and to create a little check mark and then say, "As long as I'm doing these, God is pleased with me. As long as I'm loving others, as long as I listen, this is not a to-do list. This is not a "do these things, and you're saved." Like, we do these things because God has already moved in us. We are saved by faith and faith alone. There is no other way. That's it. And by our faith, God creates in us a new heart that desires different things. We're going to be compelled by the Spirit to do these things, not because they earn us anything, but because we love God and we want to be like God because He's perfect in righteousness. And He's sanctifying us into that, and so we're going to begin to do these things not out of compulsion, but out of love for God. So don't don't start writing these down. Okay, I got to do these. I got to check these off. Okay, it's not about that. You need, you need to you need to trust in God first, and then these these will follow. But it's, these don't earn you anything. Okay, and so I'd encourage you this morning to. Um, Self-evaluate where you're at. Are 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 you loving? Are, is are you showing honor to others? Um, I'd also encourage you, like, don't stop with those five. There's there's more in that whole chapter. It's it's jam-packed. That could be an entire sermon series just on these short couple of verses over and over again. Here's all these these good things um, that that we should be compelled to do as as Christ followers. So don't stop with those five. But but for now do those five. It's, it's easy. It's simple. And if you're not doing those things, you need to, you need to check your heart. Um, you should be compelled. It shouldn't be like a, well, I could do those, but I really don't want to. Like, no, you, you should have the desire to do those things because God changes our desires at conversion, okay? Um, so I'm going to close this in a word of prayer and then I believe that we'll have a, a final song just to to reflect and meditate. And and as I said before, if you don't know me, catch me afterwards. I will I'll come introduce myself. What, whatever I'd love to get to know you better. Um, let's let's have a word of prayer and then we'll close. <clears throat> Father God, we come before you just to God. Ask for your help this morning. God, revealing us any sin that is in our lives. God, uh, help help us to 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 see you for your glory to see ourselves in our brokenness and help us to to run after you and to desire you above all things god i ask that our love for you would uh, overflow onto others and that god others would would feel the effects of us chasing after you and be be blessed by them i ask that god you would um just incline our hearts to desire you more today I ask us in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.